This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. In co-presenting this edition, and happy to be back with my voice at full throttle, I'm Michelle Tang. You certainly are, and to know your throttle is to love you. Welcome back, Michelle, me old mate. In podcast 46, we're turning the spotlight on the issue of remittances. In particular, this is all about how migrants send money home to their families, how they do it, and how that money can be used to improve the lives of those who stayed at home. We'll be talking to IFAD's Financing Facility for Remittances, or FFR lead, Pedro de Vasconcelos. Also in the show, we will be taking the temperature of the agroecology movement. Yes, we have the pleasure of hearing from Professor Emeritus of Agroecology at the University of California in Berkeley, the one and only Miguel Altieri. Yay, Miguel! He's a leader in the agroecological movement, an advocate of sustainable agriculture, and is highly critical of large agribusiness corporations. He has a lot of interesting, if not controversial, things to say. Meanwhile, we recently celebrated the International Day of Family Remittances. That's the day that recognizes the role millions of migrants play through the monies they return home to reduce economic insecurities and such things as the impacts of natural and climate-related disasters. Over the past 20 years, remittance flows have increased five-fold. Even during economic downturns, remittances continue to flow as they bind migrants to their families back home, helping them stay afloat. Also talking remittances is Bibiana Vasquez. She talks about a regional project active in Ghana, Kenya, Senegal, the Gambia and Uganda. Then there's another scintillating episode in our ongoing mini-series from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development. Today, we speak with Joe Puri, Associate Vice President at IFAD, on the importance of not only producing good data, but also how to use that data in decision-making. We then return to David Bernal, an expert on digital remittances. He'll be telling us all about how the world of remittances is speeding up and moving in this ever more digital age. After that, we have a chat with Guillaume Top. He's another one of FFR's remittance experts, and he's going to do a deep dive into a project in Mali where money being returned home is being put to good use. Also coming up, we meet with the latest Recipes for Change chef, Chef Sang, from his home in Los Angeles. This internet sensation promotes the food of his homeland, Lao, and now he's promoting the work of EFAD around sustainable food systems. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. Coming up, time to start talking remittances. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. Pedro de Vasconcelos leads EFAT's Financing Facility for Remittances, or the FFR. Our reporter, Nora Bona, spoke with him and asked more about what can be done with the money sent home. 
Well, my first, my first advice is to say that they're using it wisely already. Uh, as we say, they're achieving their own SDGs with these funds. They're also saving and investing. Uh, the, the, the disappearings of these flows from one day to another would lead to a massive global crisis, as we all thought we were at the brink of during the pandemic, where uh, migrants could not send their remittances. And for three months, we saw the impact. Until it resumed, we saw what they could do. Uh, in terms of national, community, and family level impact. So my advice, of course, is first is an advice to not the families, but to everyone else is these are private flows. These are their funds. What you can do is provide more options for them to use these flows. That's, a, that's one. Not to tell them what not to use it for, not to try to redirect this flows many governments uh, have that tendency of wanting to say imagine what we could do with this money so that, that my first advice is for non-remittance families of what not to do do no harm in what in other words now for the families as i mentioned or illustrated or alluded to is that they need more options to use this funds most of the remittances families in low and middle income countries particularly in rural areas are financially disenfranchised, meaning they don't have any connection with financial services, uh, they sometimes microfinance institutions, but, but that's it. Now with, with remittances, this can be really a, a connection to financial services and their products, such as savings, credit, insurance. That is what remittances can bring. The mere fact that you receive remittances uh, through a through a money transfer company or digitally more and more as we see today, we are realizing that you could provide more options by linking the fact that you receive remittances with as, as a financial product. Like, hey, if you receive remittances on a regular basis, we might provide you with a loan. Or if you save some of those funds now for a determined period of time, you will be a little credit history that could give you access to other financial services. Finally, insurance, particularly after the crisis, we saw really an uptake from remittance families and services like insurance, remittance insurance, but also related to crop insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the, the, the notion of the advice is uh, to link this to more, um, to more to additional products that will give them more options to use their funds. But however, to do that, many do require financial literacy, uh, more support in, uh, in financial education. And, and, and this is something that governments can also support, national uh, uh, governments, but also local, local governments can support their, their recipient communities. And there's great benefits to doing that because actually these families, again, are receiving funds and could learn better on to managing uh, and understanding the options that are now available to them. So this is sort of the advice. Uh, and for many, of course, is, let me illustrate with an example. You receive your $200, you spend it all. Uh, one of the financial literacy education is, well, say, you know, save before you spend, uh, save it. Uh, think about that, plan for the future, because at the end of the day, the phenomenon of remittances is due to the fact that because of the lack of opportunities, some family members have to leave to be able to send money for, for their family members, not only to stay home, but uh, to maintain you know, uh, a line above, above poverty. 
if you want to get out of that cycle, you need to use your money more wisely with more options. And that, I think, is the main advice uh, that remittance families and migrants alike should, uh, should have. Thanks to Pedro. He'll be back a little later in Podcast 46. But before that, we're taking the temperature of the agroecological movement. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson with Michelle Tang. What is agroecology? It can mean different things to different people. And our understanding of it has changed a lot in the last 30 to 40 years. Agroecology was first mentioned as far back as the 1920s. At its base, agroecology is sustainable farming that works with nature. It's the application of ecological concepts and principles in farming. It promotes farming practices that mitigate climate change, works with wildlife, and puts farmers and communities in the driving seat. Joining us today on Farms Food Future is Chilean-born agronomist and entomologist Professor Emeritus of Agroecology at the University of California in Berkeley, the one and only Miguel Altieri. He's a leader in the agroecological movement, an advocate of sustainable agriculture, and is highly critical of large agribusiness corporations. Professor Miguel Altieri, welcome to Farms Food Future. First of all, I'd just like to ask you, how would you try and sum up for our listeners what agroecology is? And, and, and where's it at? Where's it moved to over the years? Well, thank you very much, Brian, for the invitation. Um, agroecology is a science of applying ecological concepts and principles in the design and management of sustainable farming systems. That's kind of the, the original type of uh, definition of agroecology. But agroecology also now encompasses a much broader approach since um, social scientists and, uh, and also social movements have uh, taken over um, agroecology as a promising pathway for realizing more just and sustainable food systems. So basically agroecology is a more of a holistic approach that incorporates ecological, health, social, political, and economic considerations into the design and management of, of agricultural systems and food systems that are going to be socially just, economically viable, and also resilient to climate change. And it can be applied at the field level, at the farm level, at the regional level, and at the whole food scale as a level. So basically, that's where we are now. Um, agriculture has evolved from, from an approach that, uh, that, um, that was just dealing with at the farm level to now uh, an approach that is, that is um, taking into consideration the, the transformation of the whole food system. If uh, the International Fund for Agricultural Development works at all these levels, but its primary purpose is to, is to help small-scale farmers in developing countries. How do you think IFAD fits agroecology into its work? How can it fit it better into its work? Well, it is, it is interesting that uh, uh, since the last, let's say, since the FAO conference 
of um, some years ago on agroecology, many intergovernmental inter organizations, including IFAD, has, have identified agroecology as a promising approach to, to reach food security, biodiversity conservation, and dealing with climate change. Um, the worry that, that I have is that many of these organizations have taken on only certain elements of agroecology, usually the technical um, elements, and have um, lived, left out one of the most promising or the most important dimensions of agroecology, which is the political and economic and social dimensions, because agroecology is transformative. What it wants is to transform the food system. Basically, we're talking about the dominant conventional food system to a system that is much more localized, that is much more sustainable and in many ways. And so I don't know um, what IFAD perspective on agroecology is, if it has taken the whole um, definition of agroecology, including the political dimensions, as well as the technical ones, or is just emphasizing certain certain level of um, just the technical approach. But definitely, um, agroecology was born in in, the, in in Latin America and the developing world, and has a tremendous potential to be applied among small farmers because uh, agroecology also comprises a, a dialogue of wisdoms. It takes into consideration the knowledge that farming communities have evolved for centuries. And, uh, and from, from that emerges principles. Um, from that dialogue of wisdoms descends uh, a, a set of principles that are the ones that allow us to design and manage the, this more equitable, more resilient and more sustainable farming systems. So one important consideration, and I know I've had worked with indigenous communities, is the incorporation of the knowledge of these people and, and mobilize it through agroecological approaches. It is important also to consider that agroecology has become a political movement that brings together diverse grassroots efforts uh, to address uh, many problems of injustice, environmental degradation, lack of food safety, hunger, and the impoverishment of rural and urban areas. So agroecology as a social movement is aiming to challenge the power structures that perpetuate poverty and, and injustice and, and it, what it does, it, it allows um, the creation of bonds, uh, alliances between uh, different movements, social movements, both in the rural areas and also in the, in, the, in the urban areas, to promote food sovereignty. La Via Campesina, which is the largest peasant movement in the world, has taken agroecology as an important component of food sovereignty, which has a very deep political implication. So I, I wonder if IFAD, uh, works in that dimension. I know that um, many intergovernmental organizations are careful in dealing with the, the more political um, perspectives of agroecology. Because basically at the end, if we really want to end hunger and poverty, we have to put the food production in the hands of the people that control the means of production, which is land, water, seeds. And, um, and that's something that is difficult to deal with because corporations today throughout the world are controlling this means of production. IFAD works with governments. It also works very closely with indigenous people's organization and runs the Indigenous People's Forum. 
um, well, it facilitates the Indigenous Peoples Forum that takes place every two years and has a lot of work on um, free, prior and informed consent with Indigenous peoples. But also we work with farmers organisations around the world. So, I mean, I know that that's something we're doing. What I'd like to ask you is, um, if you look at the greatest successes of the agroecological movement, would you say that the creation of the social movement is the biggest and the best, or are there other things you would focus on as well? No, I think that the most important achievements of agroecology have been not only that it has become a political social movement, but that it has deployed at the grassroots levels hundreds and hundreds of productive projects that, ha that are increasing food production without the use of an external chemical input, that are conserving biodiversity, that are regenerating landscapes, and also the scientific evidence that agroecology is productive, is sustainable, is resilient. There's a lot of evidence. And, and what is remarkable about this is that agroecology achieve all this through NGOs, peasant organizations, some research organizations, without funding compared, for example, to the CGIR. I mean, the funding that agroecology has received compared to the CGIR is maybe 1%. But the achievements, the, the returns on the investment are huge. So I think that uh, that, to me, is the most important achievement. And this is why now organizations like FAO that fought agroecology for decades are now considering agroecology as a viable path. Otherwise, why would they consider agroecology as a viable path? And not only FAO, CGIR, and many others now are talking about agroecology. They, they jump in the bandwagon because they see the potential and they see the shortcomings of the Green Revolution approach that they have supported for so many years. And we'll be hearing more from Professor Miguel Altieri later in episode 46. Up next, Bibiana Vasquez takes us to look at how money sent home has real impacts at home. This is Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. Bibiana Vasquez works with EFAT's financing facility for remittances. She works on a 1.3 million euro project designed to improve the remittances ecosystem in Africa. The project is called the Scaling and Leveraging Digital International Remittances to Ghana, Kenya, Senegal, the Gambia and Uganda. And that also wins the prize for longest project title. Anyway, our reporter Noah Bonner asked, can you talk about the main challenges remittance-receiving households face in these project areas? Even though it's a regional project, these respond to priority areas identified in each country. So data is always a must. We, we need to identify the specific needs of people uh, in terms of financial and remittance services. So this is something that the project covers. Well, data is usually very expensive to get, very costly. So... By the support of IFA, this is something that is enabled not only to the private sector, but also to public entities so that better laws, regulations, etc. are implemented. So the other aspect that is sort of a challenge is the low understanding of digital services. People get scared about sending money that is not, you know, canned in cash in hand. You know, people prefer cash and the idea is to also... Uh, educate people so that they understand what, what's the meaning of a mobile wallet, for example, or a digital transaction. In the Gambia, more specifically, uh, the project focuses on increasing the number of rural agents, meaning the people who cash out remittances in rural areas and remote areas, 
And also it focuses on the financial education of, of recipients. Because one of the issues in Gambia is the low level of financial inclusion and the low level of mobile for digital access. So AfriMoney, which is one of the partners of MFS Africa, is running campaigns also amongst the most vulnerable groups, including rural women. And this is in, done in partnership with Buzz Women, which is a local NGO. And the other challenge is normally the high cost of formal remittances that basically limit people from using the formal channels. So this project by promoting digital channels, it's seeking to reduce the cost, the transfer cost to less than 3%, which is the SDG goal. In 2022, just to give an example, the average cost of sending money to Sub-Saharan Africa was 8.4%, which is really high. The global average is at 6.3%. And again, the SDG goal is 3% or less. So Gambia's transfer costs are around 12%. So yeah, it's it's one of the biggest issues and challenges, I would say. And what role can this project play in addressing these challenges and creating more opportunities for household remittances? So, well, as I mentioned before, data is one of the big needs. So services are co-financed by IFAD funding, and again, this is financed by the European Union, and they're very interested also in improving access to more data, accurate data. Also, financial education is adapted to the needs of people, and there's uh, many awareness campaigns run among migrants in Europe or in sending countries, and also to recipients. On both sides, there needs to be an understanding of the digital products that are offered by private sector entities. So there's engagement with these engagement campaigns with the diaspora. And, and again, the idea is to shift from a cash-based informal channel towards more formal and digital channels. The, but the emphasis, again, on financial literacy is crucial. Again, as I said, particularly in the Gambia. So there's both financial literacy and digital literacy, meaning understanding of how to use digital means to, to send money. And um, then there's a third aspect, and is the access to insurance products that are linked to remittances. And this means that for every, for example, the way it works in this project, there's there's two, two means, two channels. One is... Uh, facilitated through money transfer operators. So for each remittance that is sent, a percentage is used to purchase an insurance that covers health issues of the migrant so that if this person gets you know, sick or has health issues, then the, the family is covered with uh, the remittances that this person normally sends. So this is an embedded product to the remittances. So what are some of the policy changes that need to happen in order to create more opportunities to improve the financial resilience and economic empowerment of remittance? In terms of policy changes, there are, are many that the different stakeholders in the remittances industry worldwide keep working on. This is not something that is, let's say, completely abandoned, but it, it's something that all stakeholders work hand-in-hand hand to, to change. So one of those is interoperability, 
meaning that the payment schemes promote more affordable, low-value costs and, and cross-border payments by enabling interoperable systems. For, for remittance users, interoperability facilitates access to low-cost remittance products that are adapted to them because it brings together a network of remittance service providers and it enables, enables each person basically to access the most convenient one at a certain point. And for, this, for the companies, the supply side, uh, this interoperability opens up the market to many uh, remittance service providers, especially non-bank financial institutions, which uh, are typically cheaper. And this enables also partnerships among all these market participants. So it, it enhances competition, which is key to reducing price and also brings more efficiency in the payment systems in terms of settlements and clearings and all that, that is, is also very costly. So the other part is um, the need for implementation of risk-based approaches and less rigid uh, know your customer requirements for these small transaction accounts and for accessing remittances. So we're talking about transactions that are on average $200 per month. So it's, it's really low, low requirements. Um, so the other piece of it is people in, in Africa lack uh, identification. And in, in many places it's needed for people to receive their remittances. So many times it's lost. We receive uh, information from projects. These remittances are not... Uh, uh, cashed out because uh, people don't have the appropriate IDs. In some countries, these IDs need to be um, updated every year, and that's very costly, and most people don't, just don't do it because they don't have the funds. So that's, uh, that's one of the issues. And, and of course, the lack of um, infrastructure, digital infrastructure in countries like Gambia, for example, is is clearly poses a limitation and, well, it's not necessarily a, a, an issue of policies, but it's it's an issue of just how the environment for, for remittances is, is set in certain countries. Thanks to Bibiana Vasquez. Coming up, we hear from EFAT's Associate Vice President, Joe Puri, talking data. You're listening to Farms Food Future with Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. Welcome to our ongoing mini-series from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by IFAD. Here we hear from leaders in the donor world about the issues that matter to them. The platform brings together donors that believe the best way to tackle global poverty and hunger is to develop agriculture, reshape food systems, and invest in rural communities. Its network of 40 influential donors includes international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations, and foundations. Today, we are talking with Joe Puri, Associate Vice President at EFAD, on the importance of not only producing good data, but also using that data in decision-making. Good morning, Joe. We are starting with a simple yet very important question. What are the issues that keep you up at night? Thanks, Muritio. 
I think the current issue that keeps me up awake at night, and I think also adheres very closely to the professional decisions that I've taken in my life, are the extent to which we don't think about evidence and data when we are trying to inform our decisions. It's almost unethical that organizations and the international space, but also the national policies in most countries, do not take into consideration data to really understand what's going on on the ground. And it's unethical because with every decision that we are making with respect to money and with respect to what we are investing on, we are essentially also making the decision to not invest in something else. Data and evidence are really the important thing that help us understand the trade-offs between our policies. Until we start to ensure that that becomes a discipline and a sine qua non for our decision-making, I will continue to have sleepless nights. Thanks very much, Joe. So the second question flows very well with your first answer. Data and evidence-based decisions are at the heart of your career. As head of strategy and knowledge at IFAD, what role does data play in achieving zero hunger and in transforming our food systems? Great question. Actually, this is one of the key things that really attracted me about IFAD which is that IFAD is committed to producing as well as using data for a lot of its decisions. As head of strategy and knowledge, um, essentially my team and I lead on all of the technical designs of the investments that we do on the ground. But when we design those investments, we use data to understand what works and what doesn't and what are the trade-offs. Just to give you an example, we're currently working in Belize and Honduras. The important thing there is to recognize that even though these are Central American economies, large sections of populations there are essentially hungry and malnourished. But what we know, for example, in these economies is not so much providing them with emergency or humanitarian assistance to get them out of hunger today. But what is really important is recognizing, and this comes from data from polycrisis over and over again, is that we know that rural people who had access to markets were able to deal with COVID, were able to deal with the price hike that we saw as a consequence of the Ukraine war as well. That analysis of data helps us to understand what should be the focus of our investments on the ground when we are designing investments in these countries. And our focus has been on developing access to local markets and infrastructure for local markets, because we know that when we build local markets, we are providing rural poor people a way to be resilient in the medium and long run. So one example is the impact assessments that IFAD does. So IFAD looks at 15% of its overall investments and does counterfactual driven impact assessments. That is, we try and see what would have happened without IFAD's investments and what happens as a consequence of IFAD's investments. The latest impact assessments showed that we were able to increase the improve economic mobility and reduce poverty by more than 26% amongst the people that we are working with. So we are able to measure it and we know what the standard error associated with it is. We know where we are working, but also where we are not able to be successful. Thanks, Joe. Uh, you just touched on what IFAD is doing in the area of data. So how is the fund working with others up and down the value chain? One is, of course, the fact that we host the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, and we see that as a very important part of the overall spectrum of our engagement with respect to data and evidence, because it also shows our overall commitment to coordination, to working with other partners in this space. So it's not just sufficient to produce the data, and that's where we, IFAD has really put its money where its mouth is with respect to using data. 
So we work with FAO as part of the 50 by 2030 initiative, as well as with the World Bank. The World Bank is really responsible for data production, FAO for data analysis, and EFAT for data use. And that's important because we do think that different organizations have different strengths. And with our engagement in the country, we are able to take forward a lot of the work that we do with data use. We also work with many foundations, with a lot of donors, so the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and of course with our country teams. So we engage with most countries and we work with their planning and monitoring and evaluation ministries or departments to ensure that we are able to bring in data into their own decision-making when we are investing in these countries. Last but not least, we also ensure that when we put together country strategies, we are able to insert the overall importance of data and data use into their own thinking as well. Thanks, Joe. You just mentioned the issue of data use. Now, data, we all know, is useless unless it is used. In your view, how do we make this a reality? As with all behavior, we need not just the nudges, but we need the incentives. We need the carrots and the sticks, right? When I was at the Green Climate Fund, the first question that was asked of me when I was heading the overall evaluation office was, well, isn't this too early for us to be thinking about data and evidence, given that we are still starting off in, with our investments? But the key thing with data is that you've got to plan for it at the beginning, and you've got to put into the DNA of every investment the overall objective of producing, collecting, and analyzing data. So we were able to work very closely with the board of the GCF to ensure that, yes, data production and use was going to be a very important part of the overall evolution of the GCF. It can be the stick. Donors have to come and insist that, yes, for everything that they're investing in, they need to have good data. Bad data is worse than no data. So not just data, but good data to be produced that have good metadata, that have good protocols, that have good disciplines, that we have good training of the teams with. EFAD is both a donor as well as a recipient. When we go out and we work with governments, we insist that this discipline is inserted into all of the investments that we do. But we also ask the donors that come to EFAD to wear that responsible hat and to push us as well. Because finally, if we don't do it, nobody else will. Our final question for you, Joe, what is the one message you would like our listeners to walk away with and why? If you don't measure it, you don't treasure it. And I think the why part is quite clear. That was Joe Puri talking to Maurizio Navarra, who's also the coordinator of the Donor Platform Secretariat. As Joe highlights, commitment to coordination is an important part of the overall spectrum with respect to data and evidence. To learn more about the donor platform's activities around data and about the platform itself, go to www.donorplatform.org. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. Back now to Pedro de Vasconcelos to get a better understanding of what they were discussing at the annual summit on remittances. Pedro is lead of the multi-donor financing facility for remittances and is EFAD's lead senior technical specialist on remittances, migration and inclusive finance. He told Nora Bonamore. Yes, this is going to be the eighth edition of this global forum on remittances, investment and development, which is stated in uh, 
several UN resolutions. There is no silver bullet, if I may say, to solve this problem. It all looks pretty simple. Uh, let's just, you know, make this more productive, etc. How hard could it be? Well, there's no silver bullet. There is not one signing of a law that will make everything better. There is not just one service provider that will provide, you know, the magic bullet of a digital zero-cost remittances and that will change completely the market and make remittances accessible uh, cheaper in, in rural areas. It's not just the goodwill of migrants and, and their family members that can solve the issue. It is, as you understand, uh, a collective effort and is only through partnerships. So that means that every part, be it private, public, or the civil society, needs to really understand their role into making remittances count more. And that's what the forum does. It brings together all sectors, uh, all stakeholders involved into the, into the remittances and diaspora investment scope to address particularly how to do it. Because we've been hearing for 20 years uh, how important this is and, and this is still needed. However, what it is key now, it is uh, to have a specific roadmap practical cases on how this can be done. And this is what the what the forum will try to do, and particularly at this time, since we are halfway to the 2030 agenda deadline, and we are now thinking not to achieve the SDGs, but how to save the SDGs. And w this is not taking into account what 1 billion people are doing on a daily basis to ensure their own SDGs. So this is really what the forum is going to be addressing. It will coincide with International Day of Family Remittances on June 16, which uh, we are calling at the UN for a, for a global movement under the campaign of digital remittances and cost reduction. These are the practical aspects and cases that can make remittances count more. And what does the future hold for migrants' remittances family vis-à-vis -vis the 2030 development agenda? Very interesting question. Well, the future in terms of migration and remittances is, is pretty clear. It's not going to go down. Uh, we're in a globalized economy. Uh, I think remittances is the human face of globalization. In Again, as I referred before, in which some migrants leave their families behind uh, so they can work abroad and provide for them. And this happens internationally, but it also, and actually more consequentially, happens at domestic level. Some live in to rural, from rural areas to, to, to the cities to find jobs and, and be able to provide. This is not going to change. As a matter of fact, the remittances, since they started being counted, because these exist for a long time, but in the early 2000s, were still being counted. When you look at the flows, it's the only flow that actually consistently increased from year to year at a constant, normally 10%, but depending, but if you take the crisis, at least 5%. So this is the reality. It will not stop simply because there is a, a, a global demand for this. There's countries that need labor and, uh, and uh, some that have excess of it and, and, and in need of, of funds. So it will continue. And this is why it is more important than ever uh, when we think into the future to really make remittances not only count more, but something of a natural aspect that it is included in all aspects of national economies, uh, business services, and, uh, and, and, and rational, let's say, for, for the civil society. 
I can just dilute onto one thing. There is countries in Europe, in Southern Europe, like Portugal, Spain, that actually were able to reach their economic standards because members of their diaspora were sending remittances on a regular basis. This allowed a lot of the banking sector to grow. Uh, This is still a reality today. They just don't call it remittances anymore. So this is an interesting aspect because we have proof of what remittances can do if the entire ecosystem is is thought of and well-managed. And unfortunately, the lessons learned are being lost through time. Uh, what happened in the 90s and the, and the 80s uh, was it's not reproduced elsewhere in now in countries where this phenomenon is being reproduced. And, and I think that, uh, that this actually uh, could, could change. And this is one of the efforts that IFAD is trying to, to, to implement, but alone cannot be done, obviously. And, and this global coalition of understanding what remittances can do and should be uh, should be doing uh, is, I believe, what what will happen in the in the future. So I do see a very positive outcome at the end of the day, due to the sheer you know devotion of one billion people involved into this phenomenon. That was Pedro de Vasconcelos, and you can find out more about the financing facility for remittances at www.efat.org forward slash ffr. Coming up, more on remittances in Uganda. You're listening to Podcast 46 of Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. David Berno has been working for IFAD's financing facility for remittances in Kenya and Uganda since 2021. In that, he also covers the area of inclusive and digital finance. Our reporter, Noor Bonner, asks what the Promoting Affordable Digital Remittances project in rural Uganda is all about. Since 2018, uh, IFAD financing facility for remittances has been implementing a a regional program called Prime Africa with ongoing activities in seven countries, including Uganda. The program aims to support the reach of uh, remittance cost reduction at 3% of the cent amount and to enhance financial inclusion of the remittance users through remittance-linked financial services. Uh, According to the World Bank in 2022, uh, Uganda received over 1.2 billion US dollar, equal to 3% of the GDP. Uh, in 2021, we launched a national study on remittance market in Uganda, available on premiscop.org, which laid the foundation of an initial roadmap for action and called for a proposal to support the private sector, through which we selected Stambic Bank project. Uh, the project with Stanley Bank is leveraging the bank recently launched e-wallet called FlexiPay, uh, which had been designed to serve unbanked and underbanked population, especially in rural areas. The project um, has a focus on two main corridors, uh, Sweden to Uganda and Kenya to Uganda. Uh, moreover, uh, Stambik has an extensive uh, distribution network in the countryside, which include more than a thousand SACOs currently uh, onboarded as FlexiPay agents. A selected number of these SACOs will promote financial literacy among their members through tailor-made financial literacy curriculum, uh, which will include uh, international remittances. 
Can you talk about the main challenges remittance receiving households face? In Uganda, rural remittance receivers don't have adequate access points. Uh, therefore, in many cases, the money is sent first to urban centers and then uh, rerouted towards rural areas with obvious limitation in terms of cost and time to access these funds. A second challenge is linked to the fact that um, a large share of remittances uh, doesn't terminate into an account. Uh, and in fact, the money is received over the counter uh, in many cases, uh, don't create uh, um, enhanced financial footprints uh, that would be relevant to access other financial services. Um, therefore, banks and financial service provider uh, should leverage uh, more and more remittances in terms of financial inclusion uh, with provision of additional services bundled to, to these funds like savings, credit, and insurance. Um, and lastly, uh, receivers lack of adequate levels of financial literacy, which is very relevant to empower customers' skills uh, to choose the best providers in terms of uh, financial conditions and consumer protection. And what role can HIFAD and this project play in addressing these challenges and creating more opportunities for household remittances? The project with Stambik has plans to address, uh, uh, to some extent, <clears throat> all the mentioned uh, challenges. Uh, determination of remittances at the FlexiPay e-wallet will enable receivers to access these funds directly into their phone, uh, reducing the need of physical access. Uh, digital remittances are key to mitigate the constraints posed by limited access points availability. Um, then the remittance footprint will be leveraged through the access of other uh, services available on the FlexiPay platform, like payment, and in the near future, credit and savings. Um, the project also foresees digital financial literacy training for SACOS uh, in partnership with Stambic Bank Incubator. The two parties will conduct a, a training of trainer sessions for SACO staff to in turn train SACO members on digital payments, uh, domestic and international remittances, and uh, basic financial skills uh, with modules like budgeting, savings, and financial tools. Thank you. And what are some of the policy changes that need to happen in order to create more opportunities to improve the financial resilience and economic empowerment of remittances users? The cost of sending money to Uganda is still very high. Uh, the average of cost of sending uh, 200 US dollar uh, in 2021 was 11.3%. Uh, this is significantly higher than the global average of 6.3%, uh, uh, and the African average of 8.46%. Uh, uh, digital remittance can reduce remittance cost, but the lack of financial and digital literacy and trust um, in digital payments hinders uh, the uptake of digital means. Therefore, um, these areas are key to fostering financial resilience and economic empowerment of uh, remittance users. Uh, at the same time, Uganda has a high rate of informal remittances, and this phenomenon is driven by low transparency in terms of price, 
which results in a lack of trust uh, uh, in financial service provider. At the policy level, early this year, uh, the Bank of Uganda partners reviewed the national uh, financial inclusion strategies for 2023-2027, uh, and as IFAD, we highlighted the importance uh, to include international remittance uh, as an integral uh, part of the strategy to influence public and private sector in addressing the main barriers and unfolding the opportunities associated to these flows. And finally, from 14-16 of June, IFAD and partners will host the 8th edition of the Global Forum on Remittances, Investment and Development and International Day of Remittances Observance. What are the expected outcomes from the forum? Uh, the incoming summit aims to reach four main outcomes. Uh, number one, creating a process for continuous engagement among key African and global public and private actors, uh, as well as the uh, civil society. Number two, promoting both African and global best practice to reduce the cost of remittances while fostering financial inclusion through market competition, uh, innovative business model, and the use of disruptive uh, technology. Number three, uh, developing multi-stakeholder uh, strategy and partnership to scale up successful financial vehicles involving migrant diaspora contribution uh, through uh, investment and uh, entrepreneurship. And uh, number four, contributing to uh, global processes on remittances, investment and development, such as the uh, SDGs achievements and implementation of the global component of migration. Uh, um, we expect uh, over 500 uh, participants at the summit, and the last day uh, falls on the 16th of June, uh, that has been declared uh, uh, as the International Day of Family Remittances by the UN uh, General Assembly to recognize the migrants' contribution to the development of their countries and communities. IFAD is the custodian of such observance and is leading uh, a digital campaign which theme for 2023-2024 is digital remittance towards financial inclusion and cost reduction. For more information, uh, you can uh, go to familyremittances.org. Thanks to David Berno. Up next, news from Mali. This is Farms Food Future. Guillaume Top is an expert in diaspora investments, in charge of monitoring a program in Mali. Our reporter, Noor Bona, spoke to him to understand what the main challenges are that investors face. She asked what the regional project, Mobilizing Malian Diaspora Investments in Agri-Food SMEs, is all about. Thank you, Noor, for this invitation. Um, what I can say about this project is that this project is part of a program developed by IFAD through its FFR facility and with the financial support of the European Union which deals with uh, investment by the diaspora of Mali in their country of origin. Uh, for this project, uh, which started in uh, 2022, IFAD set up a partnership with FADEV, a French cooperative uh, specialized in impact investment in Africa. And now FADEV is proposing an investment solution for the Malian diaspora based on a formal Pontin model. The diaspora comes together uh, as a group of investors and they save together and then invest in an agribusiness 
identified by Fadevin Mali. And what inspired the creation of this project? And how does it work to support economic growth in rural communities? The global program was born of the desire of the European Union and IFAD to study and support the numerous investment initiative of the Malian diaspora. Uh, this diaspora has uh, been uh, long established in France and more recently in Spain and Italy and is well known because it is highly organized and carry out a lot of projects in Mali every year for more than 4,000 associations. But it's also many members of the diaspora who set up or invest in businesses in Mali every year. Most of these people come from rural areas uh, where they invest primarily in agriculture with the aim of creating jobs and boosting food security. Padev, uh, which has been investing in Mali for several years, uh, was uh, regularly approached by the diaspora, by the Malian diaspora, and so decided to put, to put its investment expertise at the service of uh, Malian association and young investors from the diaspora. And can you talk about the main challenges the business investment receiver face? We all know that the political and security and therefore economic situation in Mali and in the Sahel is currently quite complicated. Uh, consumers of agriculture, agricultural products are there, of course, but SMEs in the sector looking for financing to develop their offer or their markets can't find investment. And it is because traditional investors are very cautious at the moment. So these entrepreneurs are therefore very interested in finding resilient investors such as the diaspora, even if it means for them to open their capital, uh, which is not common in Mali, especially in the uh, agribusiness sector, and so require an effort to raise awareness from players such as FADEV. In the, in the SMEs and agriculture, uh, in agro-business sector. And finally, how can listeners get involved and support the work that the project and IFAD are doing to promote self and wage employment in the agro-business sector? Um, it's quite easy. They can type Yiri Mali, uh, which is the name of the investment solution, Uh, Y-I-R-I-M-A-L-I uh, into the search engine and find information uh, so on the, on the FADEV uh, website. If they want to join a group of investors to support with other members of the diaspora uh, high impact business project in the agribusiness sector in Mali, uh, they will find all the information uh, on internet. They must assume that the ticket to invest is around 1,000 euros per person, which allows uh, a group to invest li like 15 to 20,000 euros per company. And uh, finally, if they know people uh, in the Malian diaspora, they should not hesitate to tell them about uh, the project. Thanks to Guillaume Top. Make sure you also check out our other podcasts. 
In Podcast 43, we spoke to the boss at the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity with a special report on the Duchy of Cornwall's eco credentials in the UK. And in Podcast 44, we found out what can be done to stem water scarcity in the Near East and North Africa. Then in Podcast 45, we looked at the impacts and solutions for climate change on small island developing states. And next month in Podcast 47, as the UN celebrates International Youth Day, we'll be taking a look at work in rural communities that focuses on the younger demographic. Now, though, in Podcast 46, we're introduced to our new Recipes for Change chef from Laos via Los Angeles. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson with Michelle Tang. Chef Sieng is a Los Angeles based chef and something of an internet sensation. Born in a refugee camp after his parents fled from their home in Laos, he eventually transferred to the US. Our reporter, Noah Bonner, asked him if he could tell us why he decided to join IFAD's Recipes for Change campaign. Um, so it's funny that you said.、Um... About the campaign, because I actually came across, I remember a while back,、uh, Recipes for Change, and I didn't think much about it until you all reached out. And that gave me time、um, to really look, look into the campaign and what the organization was doing around the world. And, and after seeing that, it really resonated with me in terms of the work that you all are doing. And it aligns pretty well with what I do for my work. In terms of like advocating for social and environmental change, I think on my end, I'm a strong believer that、um, food can impact the world and there is a lot of power in food. And so I like to use food as like a vehicle in talking about all these other types of topics that affect various communities. And that's why、um, I, I wanted to join the Recipes for Change campaign and be a chef under you all. And what role do chefs play in making food s y s t e m more sustainable and just?、Uh, well, chefs, I believe they have a very crucial and important role in our food systems.、Um, I, I think back a lot about my upbringing in my,、um, my Lao household in Wisconsin. And so, like my family, we were refugees from, from Laos. And so, the way my, my parents lived was very different to how. Um, we lived in Wisconsin, but they were still able to bring、um, this, this idea of comfort of what home meant from them into the like, Wisconsin winters. And my mom, she was practicing these skills of sustainability without me even knowing that it, it was sustainability,、mm-hmm. right? And so think, I think about like、uh, my mom's Lao garden of her、um, planting the seeds and harvesting. Seasonal produce and vegetables in our backyard,、um, and how, how crucial it was for, for us to bring like a little piece of Laos into Wisconsin. And so I think also about like one of the, the big、um, like ingredients, I would say, is called badak, which is unfiltered fish sauce, and that is fermented. So, like my dad, he would go fishing and bring back all the catch. And with The process of making badak, you don't waste anything. Everything from the head to the body of the fish, everything is fermented. And I didn't realize everything that my parents were doing was just 
giving me the skill set of, of living more sustainably um, once I left um, for California. And, and I think now that I practice like my passion and focus for Lao food, I realize it is very much aligned with um, living more sustainably um, in regard to like gardening and, and fermenting. Um, and I, I, I take it to my, I guess, the current idea of being a chef now is that it, it makes me more mindful of the, the things that are impacted with how I cook for my clients or what I make for my videos. Um, and I think all of this kind of plays I, plays the role of creating this community and an ecosystem um, of helping one another with the chefs playing that kind of liaison role. And do you consider that using local, seasonal and organic products makes the difference in the outcome? Uh, yeah, I think all of using local, seasonal and organic products do make a difference. Um, and I think about like the micro levels of communities. So individually, if we are able to uh, empower ourselves to, to find ways to be more sustainable, um, I think that is essentially, it radiates to other people. So example for me would be like thinking about Lao food because Lao food is so underrepresented. Um, I, I think about the Lao food movement and how that be, kind of became a grassroots movement of really um, spotlighting a lot of the Lao chefs, including myself around the nation and showing other people representation within Lao cooking, Lao cuisine, and knowing that it was possible to create such as from a small community into an uprising of, of passionate Lao cooks around the nation and the world. And so I think about this also on like the sustainability level, because the same concept of being able to advocate and show up for yourself and community through um, shopping locally or cooking seasonally, I think th those are crucial tools um, to to be able to show the community, to be able to show people around you that you're trying your best, because ultimately I think that will affect the macro level of our systems and policies and regulations moving forward. Thanks to Chef Xiang. You can find out more about him at www.ifat.org forward slash recipes for change and also at www.xiangskitchen.org Xiang is spelt S-A-E-N-G Now we head back to hear some more on agroecology This is Farms Food Future with Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson Now it's time to hear some more from Professor Miguel Altieri a long-standing champion of the agroecological movement. He caught us up on how agroecology has moved from being sidelined to being more accepted by the agro-establishment. When we started back in the 80s, in the early 80s, we were ignored by all these organizations. Then agroecology continued growing, and then they fought us. They said, you cannot feed the world with agroecology. Agroecology is not scientific. And then suddenly, you know, the agriculture continue growing, and now they say, no, agriculture is the past. But, as I told you, it's a, it's a certain elements of agriculture that they're taking, because they're not talking about food sovereignty, for example, which means land reform, which gives the means of production to the people, and, and so on. And so they take certain elements, and therefore their, their approach is not holistic and it's not representing the whole dimensions of agriculture. How would you like to see 
the future for the agroecological movement? Well, I see that the, the future is playing in favor of agroecology because uh, it's showing that it's the only viable path to confront the crisis, the polycrisis that we are that we're facing today. With agroecology, you can you can produce food despite the fact that the fertilizers and pesticides are going up in price because of the Ukraine uh, war. Um, agroecology continues producing in the face of climate change, and we we have done hundreds of studies showing that agroecological systems resist and recover from hurricanes and drought much faster than conventional monoculture approaches. Um, we're seeing that agroecology uh, is the only response, for example, during the pandemic, uh, when, when the whole um, food system collapsed, the distribution and, and production, um, the, the cities in, in developing countries here in Latin America, uh, particularly, um, were fed by small farmers, which continue uh, their role, despite the fact that the, the, the whole food system was not working out. So <clears throat> I see that that we need uh, agroecologists a major response to um, counteract the, the advance of, of an approach of agriculture, which is what we call the revolution 4.0, you know, that is all going to be based on robotics and, and, um, and digitalization and crisp uh, gene editing and all these approaches that are being uh, fomented as a solution for the future, when in fact we know that, as Einstein said, you cannot solve the problem with the same mentality that created it. And uh, all these approaches, the, the modern approaches that are being fomented, are approaches that are based on the same mentality that created the Green Revolution. It's just another step forward. And agroecology, on the other hand, is a transformative uh, approach that wants to change the system. We need a, a paradigm shift in order to deal with the polycrisis and agroecology provides that. As a final question, um, Miguel, um, the UN Food Systems Summit, which was held nearly two years ago, is holding its stock take this year. What, what would your message be to them to get it right, to do it better? I think that uh, what's important is that um, we consider agroecology as a, as a process that is going to provide uh, equitable access to food to everybody, to, to realize the, the right to food. And, uh, and for that, uh, we cannot come up with short solutions, solutions that only deal with the symptoms. We need to come up with solutions that, that deal with the root causes of the crisis that we're facing in the world, which is the dominant capitalist economic system. We need a new paradigm. I'm not talking about going to a socialist system either, because I think that both right and left political uh, agendas have failed and they're obsolete. And we need a new paradigm. And that's what agroecology provides. It's a, it's a much more holistic, systemic approach that deals with the root causes of problems and comes up with solutions that are going to be based in, on, 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 on natural uh, processes, but also on on the knowledge of people, uh, especially indigenous people and peasants, which uh, has proved to withstand the test of time. So, and that's basically what would be my message. Our thanks to Professor Miguel Altieri, and you can find more about his research and articles at the University of California website. That's our environment, one word, dot berkeley dot edu. 
And that brings us to the end of episode 46. Thanks as always to our producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. Also a big shout out to our reporter, Noah Bona, and also Maurizio Navarra from the Global Donor Platform. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to episode 46 of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcast. In next month's episode 47, we're talking young farmers. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at efat.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of August with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Michelle Tang and the team here at EFAD. Thanks thanks for for listening. listening.